Being in an international school environment was wonderful because I felt like I was around other people that understood me and I was also around other people who lived in more countries than I had at that point. I think it's not right that there are seven wonders of the world, but a lot of people in the world will barely have the opportunity to leave their hometown. You matter, your story matters, and know that if it's possible for someone else, then it's possible for you. Hello, and welcome to the Theatre Art Life podcast, sponsored by Harlequin Floors, world leader in floors, stage systems, and studio equipment for the performing arts. The Theatre Art Life podcast puts the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the world, the culture creators, the backstage masters. My name is Ana Aguilera. And my name is Anna Robb. Today, Bonga shares with us about her experiences in acting and telling stories. Bonga is an award-winning actor, singer, and writer based in New York for the last six years. She has worked in theater, film, television, and voiceovers. Before life in the Big Apple, she was born in Zimbabwe, raised in the United Kingdom, and China. She has a BA in film and television studies from Brunel University and classically trained in acting voice and movement at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York City. Her favorite things are spirituality, women's empowerment, and watching This Is Us. Hello! Welcome to the show! Hello, hello. Um, I realized I should update that. I do love This Is Us, but currently my main show is 911. Every single time, just so emotionally <laughs> invested in the stories. Is that a true, <laughs> true, it's like a true series or it's fiction? Oh, it's fiction. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm guessing that they would have like some sort of firefighter consultant on the team. Me, assuming. Hopefully Hollywood yeah. is doing their job. But like, <laughs> I, I, I love it and it, it feels realistic. But anyway, thank you, Anna and Anna, for welcoming to the show. I'm happy to be here this morning. It's amazing. You're, you've lived in so many different places and um, you're back now in, in New York. And, and what was it like sort of growing up and working and learning, ed getting educated in different parts of the world? Like as mentioned in the bio, but I'm still going to repeat it anyway. So I was born in Zimbabwe, um, moved to London when I was a baby, lived there until I was eight, moved back to Zimbabwe. I lived there until I was about 13 and then moved to Beijing. And I was there for all of my teens, uh, mind you listeners. Uh, the joke is I'm still a teenager. And then I went over to London for university, Brunel University Film and TV Studies, And it was like the second year of that course, because I always just wanted to be an actor anyway. Everyone pushed me towards film and TV as like a backup, which actually doesn't make any sense. But sure, when you're young and you're like, okay, I'll get you the degree. Here's the degree. Now can I do what I want to do? And so then I um, started applying for acting schools in secret. Like no one knew I was like auditioning and applying and all of that. I got into one I really liked, moved back to Zimbabwe for six months and then moved back to New York and been here ever since. And obviously there was like the pandemic in the middle. But when I was younger, to answer your question, it felt normal. I just thought it was a thing that people did. And it was only when I moved to Zimbabwe, which is where I was born, funnily, funnily enough, I encountered culture shock. Like everything was just like completely 
different. And I just felt like I stuck out like a sore pin. But going, moving to Beijing and then finally being in an in being in an international school environment was wonderful because I felt like I was around other people that understood me. And I was also around other people who lived in more countries than I had at that point. It was my normal. And I also grew up having, like when we were in Zimbabwe, my dad would go away for work and my mom would be there. Then my dad would come back and then my mom was away for work. And so it was like always missing my parents. And Again, I just thought it was my normal. It's only, you know, as you get older and into your 20s, which I'm not in my 20s yet. I don't know why I'm bringing that up. Um, <laughs> as you, you know, as you get older, you then start being like, oh, that's that's where the abandonment issues come from. Oh, like, you know, you start you start being like, oh, that kind of wasn't normal for everyone else. Or you're exchanging stories with people and then that's how you, you know you're different. But otherwise, you, yeah, you don't know you're different until someone tells you. And I feel like you can apply that to race and gender and sexuality and people with disabilities. You don't know you're different until someone's pointing it out or making you feel some type of way about it, whether that's like celebrating it and making you feel special or looking down upon it and making you feel like you're weird or like you're a pitiful case or something. Mm. But with those sort of cross-cultural experiences leaning into acting and storytelling you must have a lot of experience under your belt living in different cultures to uh play into your acting and storytelling right I do I try my best to honor and respect as many cultures as possible and also keep learning and it's being in that international school environment helped me see the world in a different way. At Harrow International School Beijing, the school I went to in Beijing, they were raising us to be global citizens. They referred to us as global citizens. So every year we actually had an expedition where we would go out to different parts of China, usually like remote parts and like villages. And, you know, we'd camp out or we'd go hiking or we would volunteer or we'd be helping with things. And it would it was helping bring us out of our comfort zones because all of us were privi- privileged. Like I went to school with a lot of rich kids. I wasn't necessarily rich. That's its own story. And that's its own confusion. People just assume that like I was rich and I grew up rich. I grew up privileged. Yes, but I didn't grow up rich. Um, but, you know, those expeditions really changed my life because I got to see people who were living below the poverty line and possibly as poor or poorer than what I thought of some people living in Zimbabwe at the time, because this was like the early to mid 2000s when Zimbabwe was going through something with its economy, which was comparable to the likes of 19, like Germany, 1930s, Great Depression. I remember being in, in history class, learning about the Great Depression and hyperinflation, thinking there's a term for this. This has happened before. This is happening right now in my country, you know? And so I use that experience and how I feel about people and telling their stories when I approach scripts and roles and stories and and character and all of that. Because even if you think of techniques like uh, Stanislavski's magic what if, you know, 
With some of the stories that I've told, um, so for instance, I played a refugee in a series of plays called The Refugee Plays. And this particular one was a short play called Hyena. And it was set around kind of a war-torn, war-torn country in Africa. And the director and I decided to set it in you know, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And so I start digging and doing research into that country. I literally knew nothing about Congo before diving into this. And the, the, I feel like that role changed my life because it made me realize, you know, if I had been born under a different circumstance or in that country, that could have been me. Like in another life, it could easily be us. I'm able to see, you know, the humanity in all of us. There's only a couple things that kind of separate us. So I always tend to remind myself, especially when times get hard in my career, which is, you know, a lot of the, what artist life, why do we do this? I remind myself that it's bigger than me because I'm getting to tell the stories of people who might not have the opportunity, or I'm getting the opportunity to share the mic with them, or in like regards to my background, I get to be an example for other young Zimbabweans growing up right now, examples that I didn't have growing up. I mean, now I have Danai Gurira, who's in Black Panther, and she was also in The Walking Dead. But growing up, I didn't really have examples. All the people I looked to were American or British. I didn't really have any like, oh, I, I want to be just like this Zimbabwean artist when I grow up. I didn't really have that. So it's bigger than me in my regards, because then I get to leave something for the next generation. And then I also get to help out my continent because there's such a rich history and there are just so many rich stories to be told in Africa. And at the time of recording this 2021, I feel like the streamers and the networks are finally catching up to that because it's been this thing where you would tell African stories, but they would still be filmed or set in America somehow. I don't know how, but somehow. And this year I've seen articles and calls for submissions where Netflix and Disney are literally co competing on finding, you know, stories in Africa. So Disney is working with a West African or possibly Nigerian animation studio on, on something for Disney+. And I saw something in Netflix where they're calling for African folk tales to be adapted into something. I have a friend who's been working on a project with uh, Ron Howard and uh, Brian Glazer under Imagine Entertainment for Netflix for a while. And it is going to be the first, I mean, to my knowledge, the first Zimbabwean animated feature film when it lands on Netflix, on the platform. And he's been drawing from his experiences growing up in Zimbabwe and, and seeing his mom and his aunts and how people interact in the village. So it's, it's, it's exciting in, in that time because finally people see like, oh, we've kind of exhausted a lot of stories in the West. Let's, let's go East. Let's go global South. Let's do all of that. We, we are seeing the success of Korean dramas in the, in the mainstream with Squid Game. And yeah, we're, we're going to see that with Africa as well. It's like the sleeping giants that people weren't thinking about until now. And they're like, oh, global audiences. Oh, Africans like content too. There's money to be made. <laughs>
I'm going to be kind of like the annoying person in the room, but I also think it is very driven by two economical factors. As you said, consumers themselves, but also production costs. Yeah, we saw that with with Spotify. Um, I, I'm not a Spotify user. Spotify only expanded into like most of the continent. I think before they were only available in like maybe three African countries until this year. Why? Because the data is showing that Spotify is trying to be like comparable to Netflix with film and TV for podcasts. Spotify want to be the leading platform for podcasts, like Audible is the leading for audiobooks and Netflix for film and TV. So they're like, oh, there's there's money to be made. We need to be the first. We need to be global. I'm like, no, where were you guys before? <laughs> like, no. I mean, well, at least there are like, I mean, from... Whatever the reason behind it, whether it's economical, social, or whatever, a mix of all of them, I at the end of the day, it's nice that we get to hear other stories. It's true. I mean, they are finally there, so I will give them that. <laughs> before before we move on, I, I do want to say that we we still have to consider, like, even being able to listen to a podcast means having access to internet and data. And what that means. And so it's like, if we want to be, I know with my own personal podcast, we can get into that later. I want to be reaching the average Zimbabwean. And that means like the person who's commuting on the bus. But, and, and I'm like, oh, I then have to think about like, oh, how can I reach them when for some people being able to afford internet data or access versus sending your child to school or something like that, you know? So those are also other things too. As as you can possibly tell, I have a savior complex. I want to save everyone. I just want everyone to be okay and to be seen and to feel happy and healthy. And yeah. Absolutely. I mean, for people to have opportunity, they need to have access to some of those basic needs, right? And now also in terms of education and career, it seems very sort of kind of like intuitive in the West because internet is everywhere, right? But when you do dig into places in in Africa, there's it's very it's it's much more difficult. Actually there's even difficult places in Australia that people have difficulty getting access to internet. It's it's not everywhere, right? So and like you said, if there's mountains and mountains of content and stories and history and culture and even from area to area in Africa there's so many layers there that will explode once that access is given in both ways in Africans telling their stories and in Africa listening to the rest of the world once they have those access that's kind of exciting when you think about it so I kind of, I'll want to join you on that savior complex. Let's get them internet. <laughs> yes, Anna. <laughs> internet for all, especially because, I mean, this is now no longer turning into a theater podcast, but if we're talking about ever, like the, the, the buzzwords this year, crypto, NFT, blockchain, you know? Like, you said we'd go deep. We'd go deep straight away. But at the yes. same time, acting in theater and arts is a reflection of our culture. So unless we That's talk about true. what's going on in the world, how can we tell those stories? So it's, it's important it's- to hear what you are passionate about um, because that will come out in your work as you as you go through your career, I'm sure. Yeah, if we're not here for the people, then what are we doing? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> well, in 
I guess we can go back to theater if you go- want. <laughs> I am all ready. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to. But then tell us, how are you fitting and choosing your stories based on your personal history and your interest? And when you are handed a script or when uh, you, you tell us a little bit when you approach the script, but before that, how do you choose it? Who do you choose to work with? Which kind of stories do you decide to tell? The answer might not be too satisfying. So I am very spiritual and I lead with intuition. I've been doing a mindset course for most of this year, just digging deep on like personal growth and like limiting beliefs, stuff that's been holding me back. I've been self-sabotaging and just like childhood wounds. And my teacher has this really great phase. She says, is this lighting me up? And so I feel like that's when I say I lead with intuition, it's it's kind of similar to using that phrase. Like I'll be scrolling through a breakdown or my manager will some, will send me something and I have to really think and be like, is this lighting me up? And then I also have to consider, you know, I, I, I feel like in the beginning when you, you know, let's say, graduate from school and you join the industry, you're encouraged to do everything, which is, you know, great for the experience for a while. But then afterwards, you're like, why am I forcing myself to submit for this thing that I don't even believe in, that I feel like is perpetuating all these like preconceived notions and stereotypes and all of this stuff. I I then had to tell myself, well, do you know what? I don't have to force myself to submit for this project just to do something to feel like I am an actor because I'm doing the thing or I'm booking the thing. There is possibly someone else or someone who's new to the industry or doesn't have as many credits who would literally love to have this thing and have this opportunity. So I also then think about saying no to something is also giving someone else the opportunity to have their yes or to have their their I've booked it moment. I feel like in the beginning I was saying yes to everything. Now I'm very careful about like I'll actually be like, oh, this is a project I'm interested in. And then I'll have to see, oh, who's producing it? Who's directing it? Who wrote it? Especially if it's like, oh, this project is, I don't know, about women in some regard. It's like, oh, it was written by a man. And so I'm like, oh, oh, I have to look into that a bit more. I have to Google what else they've done. As an actor, what is their reputation? Because you do have projects where they're kind of like factories where it's like the same companies always doing something every month. So it's like, do you necessarily want to have that on your resume if they're not kind of reputable, you know? And then as I've gotten older, getting older is now like you factor in values and morals and you're like, darn it, why why couldn't I just look the other way, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. I think you're the very first person on the podcast, and it's funny because I was just reflecting on this last night, that tells or takes this approach of saying no. Everyone always tells us they say yes, and this is how they've come across opportunities and done all those things in life, and they all said that they said yes to everything that came their way. And yesterday I was reflecting on this and on a personal thing. I was like, I don't think I want to say yes to this. I really don't think so. I think yeah. it's really wise, you know, uh, Vonga, to, uh, to especially at your age to to say that. And I think I hope that ge- the generation, you know, I guess I'm much older than you, but we're of a generation that we that we probably work too hard and too much, and often didn't question the why of what we're doing. And I think a lot 
of the younger generation are growing up very more self-aware because you're far more exposed to the world through the internet, through education, through through this. So I, I think it's amazing that you're, you're choosing things that, you know, um, drive you, that move you, and, and with that intuition, I mean, to do that at, at your age is amazing. And so I guess, you know, we've got a couple of notes here about black stories and immigration and refugees and things like that. So you've got particular interest in in those kind of stories, they what light you up? Yeah, they say write what you know. And so I feel like I've, I'm becoming more and more of an artist who is wanting to make some sort of impact based on the stuff that she's experienced. So Black stories because I'm Black and I know what it's, you know, like to be mistreated and all the stuff that's happened in our community and also being looked down upon as kind of like the lowest of the racial or ethnic hierarchy, if that makes sense. And then also being a woman because of how different societies around the world see us as the second sex and and all of this stuff. Although I had a chat with a friend who said there may be like a community somewhere in an East African country where like it was the opposite and like, you know, women are highly like regarded. And I know in uh, modern day Benin, years, like centuries ago, like the Dahomey Warriors, which is what the woman king starring Viola Davis is based on, you know, they had an all female army basically. So yeah, so black stories and women and immigration, because I know the struggle of immigration and and with immigration, and usually people don't think this counts, I'm also thinking about this concept, and I hate this term, of the birth lottery. So I alluded to this earlier when I talked about the refugee plays and how, you know, in another lifetime, I could have been born in Congo and, mm. you know, grown up seeing rape as normal or war as normal and, and all of that stuff. With immigration, I'm also thinking about, like, it's just not fair that you have someone who was possibly born the same day as me, same time as me, same year as me, and they're going through completely different circumstances and they had no control over it. Like, you know, some people are born rich and then some people are not born rich and some people work really, really hard and will never see as much money as Jeff Bezos and and the friends. Um, So with immigration, I'm also, like I said, I was raised as a global citizen, I think it's not right that there are seven wonders of the world, but a lot of people in the world will barely have the opportunity to leave their hometown. And it's not just people in developing countries. It's also people here in America. I've encountered people in this country who are intimidated to apply for a passport. And I grew up in a world where it's like, passport, it's just a thing that you had. You know, it's just another book. It's like a passport to me is comparable to a birth certificate basically because I was on my mom's passport when I was a baby but for some people it's like this fear of this fear or maybe like you know not having the financial access to be able to travel to be able to go these places and then I also think about what visa restrictions do and this is a really tough one because I I was in this like all black female writing group, which was great. Um, I forget the organization that did it. And we had a resident playwright come in and she, as an exercise, she said, okay, write down, you know, what your dream is. 
And I put down, you know, I was experimenting with the idea of a world without borders. And I really had to think about this. And I'm like, well, then it's frightening because then you have all this free movement that... Chaos. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, you have chaos, basically. And we haven't, you know, our grandparents never saw this, to my knowledge. And so, so then you also have to think about, you know, you could have criminals fleeing and all of that stuff. And so then I was like, oh, damn it. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know how to make this possible. But I want this to be like a thing just because as someone who's held a Zimbabwean passport and holds a Zimbabwean passport, I literally have to get a visa for everything. Okay, sometimes my accent goes British because I grew up in the UK. And so people assume that I'm British and I do I do go out for the British roles. I mean, I'm not complaining. So people will be like, oh, like, why aren't you in London? Why aren't you in London auditioning there? Isn't it better? Or da, 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 or... And, and all of this stuff. And I'm just like, well, I'm not British. <laughs> like I would need a work visa. So like coming to the United States, if I'm traveling, I need a, v- a visa. If I'm studying, I need a visa. If I'm working, I need a visa. UK, I need a visa. Like there are only, I think, I think like 20 or something countries where it's okay for me to freely travel. And I only realized this like early 2020. And I'm like, why have I not been to the Bahamas? I don't need a visa. Okay. Uh, but <laughs> Put like, that on you know, my travel list. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let me go through all the, the, the countries where I don't need visas. But, but like, your, point, really- your, your, point, your point is super valid because there is inequity in itself in yes. passports and visas, yes. right? And then, so, yeah. And um, then I have... Yeah. Um my like my British friends, American friends and some Australian friends who are like can go well actually yeah. I'm not going to speak for Australia. You can speak for Australia. But like who can go pretty much a lot of places like you know Brits can come into the US on this ESTA thing and I was actually reading this book which I recommend everyone should read called Conditional Citizens by Leila Lalami and she was talking about how most of the people that overstay in the United States are actually British because they come on travel visas and they overstay. Uh, and and that would be the same for Australia too, because there's a lot of illegal British in Australia <laughs> overstaying their visas, I'm sure. And but yes, yeah, so it's so easy for them to get there yeah. and stay, you know. And then um, uh, other Anna, Anna Aguilera, um, you may or may not be familiar with this, but in the book she says most of the people that overstay in Mexico are Americans. Yes, I can totally speak to that. There's that. And it's very interesting when I moved to the States or even before, when I lived in Mexico, I lived in a number of places. I had a number of friends, a big number of friends that were illegal immigrants working illegally in Mexico and were either European or Americans. And most of them were Americans. And I don't know if this should be God, God probably good. <laughs> but I saw them struggle and the struggle, like I also, when I, when people talk about immigration in the U.S. being tough, I'm like, every, every country's immigration is tough. It really is. Like it was, a, it wasn't easier for my American friends in, in Mexico than it is for me here. Once you're illegal, <laughs> quote unquote, once you've determined to be an illegal human, it's not easier. Uh, when when your papers are in order, 
I think that's a lot of the difference what you're talking about because it's not the same. Yeah. Like it's not the same being legal, a legal Mexican than it would be a legal Brit. Yeah. And it also takes some amount of privilege to be able to have. So for instance, when I'm applying for a visa, let's say it's like a travel visa. And and I saw this on, uh, there's this account I follow on Instagram called Afro Latino travel or something like that. Or I think it's diaspora dash. And she was talking about like, you know, when people from some parts of the Caribbean and, and also South America, and it's the same in Africa, when you're applying for a travel visa, they'll be like, and where are you staying? And what is your reason for traveling? And, and I'm, and of course the reason, like it's, it's, it's valid that they have these questions. They need to know where people are so that shady things don't happen, but it's like, and where are you staying? And how much money do you make? And who's going to take care of you when you're there and all of this stuff, you know, and you have to supply bank statements and, and, and stuff like that. So it takes a certain amount of privilege also to be able to travel or to be able to study abroad unless, you know, thankfully you get a scholarship or some sort of help or secret benefactor a la great expectations style. But I've also encountered things where I'm in different airports of the world. And as soon as they see the the joke is if you have a green passport, you're poor. I don't know where I learned this, but like that was the joke. Or, or maybe I heard this from my mom. I think it was an ex-politician in the UK spoke up in like House of Commons and said, why is the British dealing with any country that has green in their flag or something that along those lines. It's it's awful. It's effing awful. So, <laughs> so I've had um, situations where I'm in the passport, let's say uh, home office or uh, department of Homeland Security, you know, whoever's like the immigration officer at the thing. And as soon as you hand the passport and they see it's green, it's like, and, and, and where have you traveled? And I think it was 2014 when I was moving no, 2015, I had traveled to Geneva to see my dad because he was living there. And I think this was around the same time that Ebola was rampant or something was going on somewhere in West Africa. And I just come from Geneva and I've, I've opened the page and my tickets there, which shows I've been in Europe. I was in Geneva and then I passed through Milan, you know. And I hand the officer my passport. It was a female officer. And she sees the green. And then she opens it. And she sees the tickets that say Italy and Geneva and all of that stuff, you know, coming from Europe to New York. We we all know where they are on the map and that route. It's just direct. And she's just like, and have you been to any of the countries that have like Ebola? Have you been to this country, this country, or this country? And I was trying not to get mad because I was just like, you see, I've just come from you. Like, why would I do Europe, go to Africa and then come back to, I'm like, what? And I, and did the, did the thing, the, the code switching, which I'm well-versed in being black and, and, and all of that. And, and being African, I was just like, no, I have not. But deep down in my head, I was just like, are you, are you an idiot? <laughs> it's crazy it's absolutely crazy so um i i also want to ask because you've been in, in zimbabwe what is the industry like in zimbabwe in terms of arts in just arts industry yes um so i was in zimbabwe i think for the last six to eight months before i moved back to new york and 
they have a promising community of filmmakers out there. I haven't seen so much for theater. I do know uh, Danai Gurira has started started a nonprofit years ago, which I give to now and again called Almasi Arts Collective. And they do this great thing where, because, you know, Danai went to NYU Tisch and she, like, like uh, basically a lot of her classmates and friends from her time there and did she go to Yale? I, I can't remember, but are also successful actors as well. So th- she'll bring over some American actors as guest lecturers for Almasi in Zimbabwe. And then they also have an opportunity to be able to send like a lucky Zimbabwean artist over to the U S to then learn. And they have like this cool exchange and workshops. I don't know if they've done any full productions, but on their website, I've seen that they have done a lot of readings and they're doing a lot of great work. I have a new friend. His name is Gideon Jeff and you should totally have him on the podcast. And he's, worked here in the US. He's actually still kind of remotely working in the US while he's in Zimbabwe, but he I think is the literary manager for Almasi. So he's been doing a lot of stuff with that and they hold workshops to help develop playwrights and writers to be able to tell their stories and local stories and they also have a kind of a forum or a festival where they're reuniting uh, playwrights around the African continent to kind of share their own new works, which is really great. As far as filmmaking, so on Netflix, there is a movie called The Cook-Off. It is the first Zimbabwean film to ever be on Netflix. And it was, I think they shot it back in like 2017. And it was like on the festival circuit around Africa and then it came to the US for a bit and different places and then you know the producers like pitched it to someone at Netflix and like now they're on Netflix Joan Jagu is someone who's doing a lot of great stuff and what's really cool is oh funnily enough those two as we're recording this I have been hosting like a writers retreat up in the eastern highlands of Zimbabwe like with other writers and new people where they're just like in a, like a cool Airbnb in the Eastern Highlands and they're just like writing and workshopping and doing ideas. And like Gideon's also been working with this group of like young, I guess, filmmakers, you would say, because I, you know, not necessarily that they've gone to school and done the craft and all of that stuff. It's like, you go on YouTube or you learn as you go, you know, you learn from experience. And he, there's this YouTube series that was very popular over the pandemic called What You Are Moyo, which would translate as like wanted by the heart or something like that, which kind of sounds like a soap opera, or like telenovela name. And they did very well. And so Gideon decided to go and, and help them and kind of mentor them on oh, how can they kind of work on the story structure and episodes and, and all of that stuff. And then there's like Rumbi Katedza, who's doing stuff with like documentary stuff. So sometimes like news networks like Al Jazeera and BBC and all of that, especially during the pandemic, 
they couldn't send their people over. So they've been looking towards uh, filmmakers and artists, yeah, filmmakers and crew people and production people in Zimbabwe to help them out with projects. And I'm also seeing in Zimbabwe, there's a lot of collaboration with the community, well, not the, well, the industry in South Africa and the Nollywood industry in Nigeria as well. So while I'm not like specifically well-versed in how everything is the way it is, I am aware that there's a really great promising community of artists and filmmakers doing stuff like just a lot of the, it's more film and TV heavy and less theater. I feel like when it comes to theater, it's more community theater. So uh, Reps Theater in Harare is like a famous theater where uh, I guess a lot of Zimbabweans now based here would have gotten their start and gone there. I never had that experience myself. When I was living in Zimbabwe, it was at, at the time that I was living before we moved to Beijing, it was like the arts, they are a luxury. We cannot afford this. Go study maths, you know? <laughs> um, but like for people that, you know, were able to start acting while they're young, reps theaters, like kind of the place where it all starts. And it's would be akin to more of love, like the community style theater that they have here in the United States. And now a moment for our sponsor. The Theatre Art Life podcast is proud to be sponsored by Harlequin. Harlequin is the world leader in floors, stage systems and studio equipment for the performing arts. Established in the UK over 40 years ago, Harlequin is the preferred performance floor for the world's most prestigious dance and performing arts companies, theatres and schools. From the Royal Opera House to the Bolshoi Theatre, the New York City Ballet to the Royal New Zealand Ballet. Harlequin's experience and reputation are founded on the development, manufacture and supply of a range of high-quality sprung and vinyl floors specifically designed for dance and the performing arts. Backed by an engineering team and independent research, Harlequin also designs, builds and refurbishes stages working with stage engineers and theatre consultants in leading venues across the world. Harlequin is the global leader in its field with offices in Europe, the Americas and Asia-Pacific. Find out more at harlequinfloors.com, H-A-R-L-E-Q-U-I-N floors.com. You made me think about um, a little bit our pre-recording conversation, but but there has to be stories. Like there are traditions, there is rituals and storytelling that has always happened. And this is how the art starts. So I'm just curious on how that looks like. Yeah, I think about that all the time because you know, we come from this oral tradition of passing down stories or telling folk tales around the fire and all of, and all of this stuff. But I just find that it's really sad that the arts are not as prioritized as they are. But you also have to think about, you know, people are focused on other things like the economy and jobs and sending their children to school and all of that. But Another great avenue for telling stories and creating works has been organizations like the EU or like Embassy of Sweden will hand out grants to different artists to like, let's say, go make this movie and it's also going to function as a PSA for gender-based violence or something like that. Like when I was growing up, a lot of the films we were seeing on TV were about like rape or like HIV and AIDS and all of and, and all of that stuff. Like the 
big soap opera at the time was Studio 263. And like the main thing around that was like HIV and AIDS and disclosing your status or like staying safe and, and all of that stuff. And there is a nonprofit that actually works with University of Sweden and the EU called the Culture Fund. And they do a lot of work with going out into like different parts of Zimbabwe and, and, and working with tribes and like older, I guess, formats of performance. So like traditional dancing and like Mbira players. So Mbira, which is spelled M-B-I-R-A, some people would think is called the Kalimba. It is the thumb piano. And that originates from Zimbabwe. That is our instrument. Somehow along the way got appropriated and people assume it's from West Africa or something, but it's actually from Zimbabwe and it's called Mbira. And it's actually something, so growing up, I saw the Mbira and I thought, oh, it's cool. It's our instrument, you know? And it was only, I happened to have a friend who is an, an opera singer and also comes from a long tradition of Mbira players and also traditional healers. She, you know, educated me and informed me that the Mbira is also a very spiritual instrument. So it's not just like, oh, it's piano and we play it and it's fine. It's like this very deeply spiritual thing and it comes with all these traditions. So you've got Mbira players and traditional dancing and I don't know, like, so like you're saying, Anna, there, there have to be like forms of performing that exist I guess they're not being as exposed because I'm more familiar to stuff that's happening into the in the West. And even in Zimbabwe, a lot of the stuff that we're exposed to is American and British culture. The sad thing is like, we also have this really disgusting influencer culture where people who haven't really done anything are famous for no reason. And it's kind of like they're mimicking or imitating the people you see popping bottles in music video videos and they're like celebrated for that. And I feel like we're losing a bit of ourselves by trying to cosplay what we think is American culture, which interestingly enough, a lot of popular American culture comes from the black community. <laughs> Which originally so, came from Africa. Yes, <laughs> everything is Africa. <laughs> Full circle. It is. A, it's an interesting time. Uh, it's been a number of conversations recently about the preservation of certain cultural traditions, and not. I think the the aspect of, uh, you know, not taking that tradition and you know appropriating it, right? Like not, not doing it correctly and honoring it correctly, and not just a lot of those things are steeped in tradition and history and even things like hip-hop and and, and de- certain dance styles come from the street and have a history and, 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 and just because I can do the moves doesn't mean, not that I can do the moves, I definitely cannot do the moves, but just because if I'm trying it, am I actually honouring that dance style? It's, it's something that's quite fascinating to me to, to you know, honour it, not steal it. <laughs> and then you have interesting things happening where you then have to then also ask, I think about this in terms of language, Zimbabwe in, so Zimbabwe recognizes 16 
languages. Um, one of the main ones is Shona. Some people also refer to it as Chiwanu, like of the people. And a lot of words that I grew up hearing that I thought were Shona also come from English and Dutch and German. And so then you also, I feel like deconstructing, well, what is culture? Because you have all this influence from colonialism. So I got like, I kind of made a connection with this lady who's just like very, like she's a legend in Zimbabwean music. And she's, and I think it's an ethnomusicologist. I forget the term, but she has like a whole archive. And she was telling me about like, you know, she has music from the 1920s, which is something I can't conceptualize until I'm able to hear it because Zimbabwe only got its independence in 1980. And oh, wow, Mexico has 69 official languages. That is so dope. (laughs) Zimbabwe probably has more than 16, but it's like the ones you recognize and that aren't lost. And, And so, you know, so this lady was telling me she has this music from the 1920s. Zimbabwe only got its independence in 1980. So I've probably only heard music from as like as early as the 1970s Zimbabwe, me personally. And she was saying that there was like Zimbabwean jazz and Zimbabwean rock and roll. And I was like, wait, what? I was like, wait, really? And she's like, yeah, because then you would have these art forms. This I want to hear. Came. I need to hear this. <laughs> I, need to, I need to find this. I'm yet to, re- you know, record her on, on my podcast. But, you know, she was, you know, talking about these influences that we had from colonialism, we would then take it and then we would like Africanize it or Zimbabweanize it or whatever. And that's also another interesting aspect of culture. So, you know, we can I think of binaries where it's like the old and the new, but then you have like this middle bit where everything is just this beautiful mesh and this mixture like Zimbabwean if we're talking about like racial blueprint or demographics Zimbabweans are black they're white which is also kind of its own thing that it's tough to talk talk about for some people they are also South Asian so of Indian um, heritage and and descent they're mixed (laughs) like you know there isn't one type of Zimbabwean no, I mean, well, culture is not static, right? It's it's exactly, not a fixed exactly. thing. It's it's something that lives and breathes, and that, like you said, it's just it's fascinating. Actually, I mean, yeah. to hear rock and roll from Zimbabwe—that's got to be something that happens in my life. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is the cultural episode. <laughs> I know it's amazing. I love it. I love these conversations. <laughs> yeah, I do too. <laughs> well, do you want to tell us about this amazing project called Sim Excellence? Yes, I would love to. So Zim Excellence is, so when I was at Brunel for my first degree, a Bachelor of Arts in Film and Television Studies, I had a radio show that was called Bad Rep with Erin and Vongai. Um, shout out to Erin Pearson, who is a fellow Aussie. <laughs> You'll be happy to know other Anna. Um, and so Bad Rep based off of Bad Reputation by Joan Jett. I was dabbling in women's empowerment before I really knew what it was. And so we would play like women in music. We talk about women in literature and women politics and just women, 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 because Erin realized like 
these are the days of the iPod children. Listen in. Um, so she realized when she'd be like on the bus or like on the tube, like the subway commuting, she'd be looking through her iPod and a lot of the artists she listened to were male. And so she's like, oh, like it, it would be great to have like a show where we just highlighted all these amazing women doing all these great things. And we did that for like a year. And then obviously, you know, uni work piles on, but I really loved it. And I loved the idea of being on radio. So I, I knew I wanted to do a show again. And I always felt living in New York, like I was the only Zimbabwean, which is really interesting because growing up, I was bullied. So I feel like I had been running away from my Zimbabwean identity for years. But then suddenly I'm I'm here. And so the most Zimbabweans outside of Zimbabwe are in South Africa and the UK. And then there's tons in Australia as well. Um, but not as many in the US, which was great for me because I'm like the first in my family to be here in the US. But then after a while, I'm like, wait, am I literally the only one? This is ridiculous. I kind of love to connect with other Zimbabweans who are kind of like me, who are also pursuing acting like within my generation. That'd be like really cool because, you know, we're, we're like following in Danaya Gurira's footsteps and also kind of like showing people what's possible. I'm sitting down and watching Hulu and snacking on potato chips, you know, as you do. And I see this commercial for, I think like Hyundai or something like that. We are not sponsored, by the way. And I see this Zimbabwean actor that I grew up seeing in that soap opera, Studio 263, and he's in the commercial. And I'm like, wait, when did he move to America? That's cool. I'm like, wait, is every Zimbabwean in LA? Oh, that would make sense because it's warmer. I'm like, is anyone here in New York? Cut to my friend happened to be in Schoolgirls or African Mean Girls play, which was off-Broadway at I think the the Lucille Lortel downtown, she had a spot for a dress rehearsal. And so I decided to go. And so because it was the dress rehearsal, they were still rehearsing and the theater was kind of closed. We had to wait to be let in. And I go to the poster to see, to like look at and like go gaga over this poster of these beautiful black women in the play. And I read this name. Mirirai Sitole. And instantly I recognize, I'm like, that, that's a Zimbabwean name. There's another Zimbabwean in New York. And so I kind of stay in touch with her. And then I start finding like other Zimbabweans on Instagram. And I kind of like keep tabs on them. And eventually the pandemic happened. And so I had all this time. So uh, me and this other girl, we set up a Zoom meeting where we could just kind of all meet each other. And we're all, like all based in America over Zoom and it was like 20 of us. And then we kind of started this like community out of that. And then I also then got this idea for a podcast. So I've always been jealous of the Nigerian community because I feel like they're very supportive of each other. They have like this slogan, which is Niger no de carry last. Like, you know, it's kind of similar to like America number one, you know, like all we do is win, win, like that whole mentality. And I've always wanted that for Zimbabweans, but I kind of come from the society where it's like, if you are on good times, you kind of can't share it too early or someone's going to curse you or someone's going to want bad for you. There's like a lot of jealousy, which is really sad. And not enough support. It's more like fake support. It's like, yeah, we love it. No, F her, you know? 
And so I wanted that for Zimbabwe. Yvonne Orji, who's an actress that I absolutely look up to, and she's one of the Africans who's a great example for me, who's like killing it in the game as a comedian and as an artist and like a creative, along with Issa Rae and Lavi Ajayi, has this thing called, uh, with Lavi Ajayi called Waves, which is the West African Voltron. So it's like a group text of Yvonne, Lavi, Cynthia Rivo, Bozema St. John, who was like, she was at Apple and then she was at Endeavor. And now she's like a chief marketing officer at Netflix, like people who are just making money moves. And I'm like, I would love to create that within my community. And Yvonne hosts this thing called a night of Nigerian excellence. And I've always loved the term black excellence. So I was like, oh, yo, like, like I just started using this term Zim Excellence, like, yo, I want that Zim Excellence for us. And then I was like, that'd be a cool name for a podcast. And then I realized, oh, I can't just make it about artists. I want to make it about just Zimbabweans around the world who are like making waves, change makers and trailblazers doing exciting things. And instantly I was scared. (laughs) I was like, um, but why would I be the one to do this? I was the girl who was bullied for the accent. Like, you know, I start feeling like, oh, I'm not Zimbabwean enough or this, or who will listen to, or people will hate me and all of this stuff. And like I said, I've been doing a lot of mindset work this year. And so I ended up having, because the pandemic extended itself. So I ended up having that time. And so I'm like, okay, F it. Like I have this time. Let me explore how I would do this. And then I start working through fear. And so in I started developing in February. I then started recording in March, just based off like a group of like friends that I have who are doing amazing things for Zimbabweans. And then I released in June. So long story short, I host a podcast called Zim Excellence, where I have insightful and informative conversations with Zimbabwean movers, shakers, change makers, and trailblazers from around the world, Africa. North America, South America, Europe, Oceania, you know, and as of two days ago, we've surpassed 1,500 downloads and it's been listened to in about 44 countries and 264 cities, like on all basically livable continents. So we're not in the Arctic or Antarctica. I don't know if that's possible, but if it is, I will work on it. (laughs) That's amazing. Cool. So I think we've, yeah, if our audience wants to check it out, maybe they can help you get more countries in. Yeah. And it's really great because we have people who are in sports and business and acting and people who are in the arts, who are writers and filmmakers. And you just get to hear about, you know, where they started and, and, and where they are now. And some of these people were born in Zimbabwe and some of these people were born outside in Zimbabwe and, it's it's just really great. And I feel like aside from being the examples that I wish that I had growing up, it's also a great example for non-Zimbabweans to be able to see us in a better light and not just associate us with the trillion dollar bill or a bad economy and a previous president. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. So could you give us uh, some 
like quick answers because we always ask this at the end of the the the, the thing. But um, what's the favorite thing about your job, and what's one thing you would change about the industry or your job? Favorite thing about my job is moving people, having them feel, because there's connection and feeling. Uh, something that I would change about the industry: more voices, just more voices. Especially if, like I, I feel like we're at the point where we can't be the people telling stories about people with disabilities when there isn't anyone in the room with a disability to talk about that lived experience. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's amazing. Cool. So we'll put um, the link to your website and to the podcast on our show notes. And yeah, so people can check it out definitely and listen to your podcast. Sweet, sweet stuff. Thank you so much, Mangai. You are a wonderful, talented, and uh, very culturally aware person. I re- really enjoyed talking to you. Oh, thank you, Anna Rob. Is it okay if I leave your listeners with like one small message? Absolutely. You matter. Your story matters. And know that if it's possible for someone else, then it's possible for you. I love you all. Thank you. I love that. So welcome. Theater at Life is a global media site for entertainment. Memberships start at only $38 per year. You can have unlimited access to our daily published articles, including entertainment news and the writings of active industry professionals, ensuring that you are always up to date on the global happenings in the world of entertainment. Become a part of the international entertainment community and join us now at www.theaterartlife.com.